Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of For Art's Sake and Art History and Museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So I have a little bit to talk about in regards to my personal life since the last episode, because it seems like there's never a shortage of things going on in my personal life. The last episode I did was two weeks ago, and it was a feverish attempt to put something out, obviously. That day was only the second day of symptoms for me, and it got a lot worse. The people in my life already know everything that happened because I've been talking about my experience basically everywhere. Um, I did have an official diagnosis of COVID, and I've been in quarantine this entire time. I had decided not to work on a new episode for last week because I was still recovering, even though I was a lot better. Um, I'm doing even better now. I do have some post-COVID stuff that I am dealing with. When I was really sick, I was experiencing a dry cough and a wet cough at the same time, and the dry cough was really horrible, <laughs> really, really bad. Um, I had digestive issues and no appetite, and food tasted really weird. I did not lose my sense of taste or anything like that. I had runny, stuffy nose and body aches and sweating and chills and a fever. And my fever was really interesting because it started off where I would only have, like, symptoms at night. And each night was different. Like, one night I had fever and chills and body ache and it was horrible. Another night I just had a fever and just stuff like that. And then eventually it became an all-day thing. And my cough got really, really bad to the point that I realized that I probably was getting pneumonia because I heard that noise that you have when you have pneumonia. And then I ended up going to the doctor, having my COVID diagnosis and getting medicine. Also downstairs, there's some vacuuming and the dog might bark at the vacuum. So I apologize for that. Um, I've experienced um, a lot of fatigue and dizziness. There were two days when I was really sick where I had like no sleep because I was experiencing vertigo. It was really, really terrible. Um, but again, I'm, I'm doing a lot better now. Um, I haven't had a fever in a while. I still kind of have a cough, but I'm taking like Dayquil for that. I was on a medicine that was pretty strong. That really helped. Um, but I also had codeine in it, so it was making me feel like crap. Um, I still have really bad fatigue. Sometimes, like, if I push myself too much, it just hits me like a wall, and I just basically pass away. Like, last night, I just went to sleep so quickly. I was And I slept pretty well, so that's good. But I have dizziness basically every day, and there's, like, levels of dizziness. And I still experience hand, hand numbness and tingles, which is a thing that COVID does. Um, but hopefully... You know, I go back to work next week. Hopefully I'll be a lot better. I also have um, some brain fog where I can get like really confused and sometimes I like lose my balance. I'm so dizzy and it's, it's just really weird. But yeah, anyway, since I didn't post an episode for two weeks and my most recent episode was so short and sped up and nasty, I decided to combine two topics for today's episode. Like I said a few episodes ago, I had planned out my episodes all the way into 2021, and obviously I'm way behind because things just keep happening in my life. But uh, this week, we're going to be talking about NAGPRA and the AIDS Memorial Quilt. So we're going to start out with the AIDS Memorial Quilt. World AIDS Day was on Tuesday, December 1st, so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about one of the most famous and recognizable art objects related to the AIDS epidemic in honor of that day. There are currently 48,000 panels that make up the AIDS quilt, making it the largest community folk art piece in the world as of 2020. It currently weighs 54 tons and spans 1.2 million square feet. Because of the massive size of the quilt, storage is a really interesting thing. They have to be very particular and careful because of just how heavy the quilt is, plus it's an ephemeral object. We're going to be talking about the history and a little bit of the aesthetics, but also about how to send in a quilt. 
So the AIDS quilt actually has an official name, which is the Names Project Memorial Quilt. The concept was created by AIDS activist Cleve Jones on November 27, 1985. The idea came after participating in the annual candlelight vigil march that honored San Francisco Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone were both assassinated in 1978. For the march, Jones had created a sign with names of people lost to AIDS, and he asked others to write names of their friends and family lost to AIDS, and they all carried these signs throughout the march, and then they were taped to the San Francisco Federal Building. And looking at all the signs taped up up, and with all the names, it basically looked like a patchwork quilt. The project was officially started in 1987 in San Francisco with various people joining Jones. This included Mike Smith, Joseph Durant, Jack Castor, Gert McMullen, Ron Cordova, Larkin Mayo, Steve Kirchner, and Gary Yoskolk. We're going to be talking about Gert McMullen a little bit later. At this time, which you have to remember is the late 1980s, AIDS stigma was really horrible and widespread, and there were no laws protecting people. It was, while we still have stigma today, it was way worse. The start of this project served as some of the only ways that friends and family had to remember the victims of AIDS. Not only did victims and their loved ones have to deal with stigma from surviving family members that could dictate what happened, you know, in funerals or how the lives of people could be talked about and framed, but cemeteries, funeral homes, and churches were able to refuse service or limit service to those who died from AIDS-related complications. The quilt was first publicly displayed on the National Mall on October 11, 1987. At that time, there were only 1,902 panels, which is still quite a lot. They had to use a cherry picker to like go up and see everything. The display was part of the March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, which also occurred that weekend. Since 1987, clearly, the quilt has grown. Panels can be made by individuals or as a part of a group. And the National AIDS Memorial website has a step-by-step guide on how to creatively make a panel as well as how to turn it in. First, you have to design the panel. You need to include the name of the person being remembered, and after that, the information you include, like the birth and death date, is optional. While the panel should be for one individual, you can make a panel for siblings and spouses. Second, you have to choose the correct materials. The panels are folded and unfolded anytime a panel is displayed individually or as a group. So the Memorial Project asks that you consider durability in your construction. They mention that glue deteriorates with time, so it's best to sew anything to the quilt. They ask for a medium-weight, non-stretched fabric such as a cotton duck or poplin, which I actually don't know what that is. The design can be vertical or horizontal, but it has to be an exact size. It must be 3 feet by 6 feet, not more and not less. As for the hem... Please leave an extra two to three inches on each side, but you don't have to hem it yourself because honestly, that can be a difficult thing. So the project can handle it for you. While a backing is not necessary, it does help with keeping the panel clean and keeping its shape. You want the rest of my pressing? Why are you moving stuff? Okay. <clears throat> you want to watch a movie with me when I'm done? No. We can watch smoke signals. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Uh-uh. Stop! You should have put these in there. You should have put them away. How about that? I put them away every time. Really? You took his bed. <coughs> Hurry up! <coughs> Shut up. Do you open the window? My feet are sweating. Thank you. Alright. <coughs> Toby? <coughs> okay. Third, the construction of your panel. You consider 
Third, the construction of your panel. You can consider different types of sewing, such as applique, which is sewing fabric and mementos onto the background fabric, painting using a textile paint or maybe a colored cast dye, stencils, collage, and also photos. The best way to do photos is to photocopy them onto iron-on transfers, or you can put them in a clear plastic flannel and then sew them onto the blanket. Step four is when we start to get into the submission process. Step four is when it gets into the submission process. Start by writing a letter. This letter is all about your remembrance, like your relationship to the person, how they would like to be remembered, and any memories you want to share. Feel free to send a photograph as well. The letters and photograph will be put into the project's archives, which is actually a pretty large archive, and it's really important because we need to know who this person is. Five, if you are able to, please make a donation. A donation helps pay for the cost of conservation and preservation. Six, fill out the panel maker information form on the website. Seven, send the panel in. You can get the address from the website, but you also have other options. You could bring a panel to a quilt display, but you have to make sure that you contacted the local display host for more information. You can also bring it to a local chapter. When it's given to a local chapter, it does stay in the area for up to three months before it's given to the AIDS Memorial, where it'll be sewn into a larger quilt. Those three months allow it to be used in the area for educational purposes. So how does the panel become part of the overall quilt? When a new panel arrives at the National Headquarters in San Francisco Bay, which it is now back to, it is carefully logged and examined for durability. Um, some panels might require hemming, like I mentioned before. You don't have to do the hemming yourself. They may do it for you. Um, sometimes they have to be adjusted for size or have minor repairs, or maybe it's so heavy it does need reinforcement. Next, the panels are sorted. They are grouped by different things depending on what they decide to group it with, you know, how much they have of similar panels. For example, they might be grouped geographically by region, sometimes by theme, or even appearance. When eight similar panels are collected that are then sewn all together to form a 12-foot square, and then this is the basic building block of the quilt, which is referred to as a block or 12 by 12. These individual 12 by 12 or blocks are what is most commonly used for educational purposes. And when it's put into a larger scale, like when they put the entire quilt out, it's all of these blocks. The AIDS Memorial Quilt had originally started in San Francisco, but due to the cost of living and working there and due to bankruptcy of the original organization, it had moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and McMullen followed it. In 2019, the quilt was able to move back to the San Francisco area and she followed once again. During the COVID crisis, she saw the similarities in the government's response to the pandemic, and using her skills to work through her anger and frustrations, she decided that she was going to make masks for various organizations within San Francisco. The last time the quilt was on major public display was in the year 1996, where it was on the National Mall once again. This time, then-President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton visited the quilt, which was major considering Ronald Reagan. <laughs> You can see the quilt in smaller installments in various ways, including quilt shows and museums, exhibitions, and even chapters. I got to see some panels on display at a high school over a decade now, but don't fret. Just because we're in a pandemic does not mean you can't see the quilt. The entire quilt is available virtually. If you go to aidsmemorial.org, you can visit the interactive display in its entirety. AIDS Memorial is the new organization that has taken in the quilt and has allowed the quilt to move to San Francisco again. Let's talk about the interesting aspects in regards to the aesthetics of the quilt. So basically you can do anything for this quilt in regards to design um, and what you put on the quilt as long as it's 
you know, relatively safe. So there have been various items and fabrics used in different panels. This includes different types of fabrics like leather, taffeta, bubble wrap, plastic, metal, and lace. There were decorative items like quartz, rhinestones, feathers, buttons, and sequins. There have been gloves, boots, hats, t-shirts, uniforms, sports uniforms, and flip-flops. There's been stuffed animals and records and bowling balls and condoms and human hair, cremation ashes, wedding rings, and awards. Now, not everybody knows somebody who's been affected directly by HIV AIDS, but essentially we all know somebody as in celebrities and celebrities are included on the quilt. But basically to submit a panel, you don't have to know the person personally, but you do have a connection and you want to recognize and remember that person. So some of the panels are for Freddie Mercury and Queen in general. There's one that has, that's blue with a black guitar. And there's also at least one for Rock Hudson. The AIDS Memorial Quilt is an incredibly important artwork because of the recognition that has brought to the AIDS epidemic in general, but, but specifically to the loved ones lost, um, mostly due to government incompetence um, and violence, frankly. It's not just incompetence because I feel like that's almost an excuse. It's a really beautiful and moving art object, and it's probably one of the more well-known community artworks and folk artworks ever, and it's probably one of the biggest artworks ever if you don't include buildings. <clears throat> if you ever get the chance to see the quilt in real life, even if it's just a block, a 12 by 12, I highly recommend it because seeing the work that somebody put in to remember somebody. Remember, sewing is not easy. Textiles are not an easy thing. You have to put time and energy into that, of course, with all work, artwork. But it's simply not just like a photo and a candle. It is something that's just like the step above. And it's really moving. Um, and I highly recommend checking out virtually because even if you can't like see, I, I do not think you should touch the quilt at all, but you can't really see like the physicality of the quilt, but it's still really moving. Um, and you can also search on the database. So if there's somebody specifically that you want to look for, you can do that. It's really interesting to see people's different techniques and approaches in regards to remembrance. And it's really touching. And I, of course, with something like this, you know, there is that that warning that, you know, if that's something that is triggering for you, you know, just take care of yourself. But I highly recommend it as a teaching tool in both the classroom. That's something if we will ever talk about the history of AIDS to students, this is a really great way to show the humanity of it, that there, these were real people who died and, you know, and who were loved and people still die today, even if treatment is a lot better and there's still stigma today. Um, and also in regards to museums and stuff, it's really important because it is a folk art, community art, and it's textiles, which are all things that are pushed down in regards to art, like what is and isn't art or good art. And something like this is just so incredibly important for so many reasons. And I think is one of the best teaching tools ever created, frankly. Let's close out the episode by talking about NAGPRA which I know is different than AIDS Memorial Quilt. These two topics don't really go together, but it is what it is. So NAGPRA stands for Native American Graves Protections and Reparations Act. 
It was enacted on November 16, 1990. This requires that any federal agency or institution that receives any federal funding return cultural items to Native Americans. This includes culturally affiliated tribes and lineal descendants. The cultural items include funerary objects, human remains, objects of cultural patrimony, and sacred objects. Like I said in the last episode, the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian's American Indian Museum are slightly different as they had a separate law passed that only includes them, but it's similar. Any institution that receives federal funding is included, so that means more than just the Smithsonian, which is a government institution. This can be any museum within the United States that receives any sort of funding from the federal government. States also have the option to create their own laws, which is something I briefly talked about in the previous episode, That's Toxic. Um, NAGPRA only includes federally recognized tribes, so any state recognized tribe is not included and would therefore need to rely on their own state to pass their own law. The return of objects is not the only part of NAGPRA, of course. NAGPRA also includes the trafficking of certain cultural objects, specifically human remains. I'm a person who is very into oddities, including human remains, which specifically I mean like skulls used for medical purposes um, that are allowed to be sold. Um, Because of the issues in the past, the regulations of the selling of human remains from everything from finger bones to teeth um, is highly regulated, highly regulated as long as you're not on the black market, of course. The selling and owning of human remains is complicated, obviously, and for the right reasons. Thankfully, NAGPRO makes it so that it may be criminal offense to traffic native human remains without right of possession. This isn't just human remains, of course. Other cultural items are included, but due to both the oddities interests that many people have, the historical issues of anti-native specific racism in the medical and anthropological industries, and the long history of white supremacy that includes the collection of human remains for the sole purpose of, well, white supremacist reasons, Um, trying to uh, prove the inferiority of Native Americans, it is highly important that this is included as a law and that there are criminal offenses for human remains. Penalties for a first offense may reach 12 months imprisonment and a $100,000 fine. NACPRA also includes excavation and discovery. You may have heard of construction projects where they have found human remains and had to stop construction, or because of the known history of the area, they have had excavations before starting anything just in case. Unfortunately, this does not include private or state lands, and only tribal and federal lands are included, but it's still really important. So now that I gave the basic details of the law, let's look at the history behind it. For a very, very long time, Native Americans have been incredibly concerned about what has happened or was happening to their history and cultural and literal dead ancestors. Tribes have spent decades and decades calling out the government, individuals, and institutions for what they have done in contribution to literal cultural genocide. The path to NAGPRA has been exhausting, complicated, and difficult. And guess what? It's still kind of that way. But I'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's talk about all that has happened to get to NAGPRA. Like I mentioned before, anthropology in particular has had a bad history of white supremacy, basically. The sciences that were, you know, especially biological and ethnic in any way, were especially damaging. Remember that basically anyone that wasn't white or considered white were considered vastly different, inferior, animalistic, and all of this had to be proved as well as proving whiteness as a supremacy. This included things like skull size and penis size. You had the creation of museum collections, which did not help the situation. It basically started out as rich people interested in science and art who weren't trained in sciences for a long time, basically stealing and 
collecting whatever they could to create cabinets of curiosities. The Walters Art Museum has an amazing example of this called the Room of Wonder or something like that, which you should see if there's, you know, not a pandemic. But basically, it is a room that has a bunch of stuff and does talk about the history that led to museums. But basically, they collected everything from European paintings, sculpture, to animals and shells, to literal dead bodies and jewelry stolen from different countries and tribes. You see this happen all over the world, from the destruction of tribes in America, or the Americas, rather, to, you know, people smashing Buddhas off of walls in India. You also have the extermination of animal species to the point that the only evidence we have of like certain species of birds, for example, are the drawings and taxidermy left. Institutions such as the Smithsonian, unfortunately, did contribute to this culture, particularly in the 19th century, which is the worst century for this sort of violence and genocide, frankly. While the creation of museums is technically a good thing, it also isn't a good thing. You know, history is complicated. These large institutions began to basically compete, which led to an increase of this violence and destruction. As of the passing of NAGPRA in 1990, there was 14,500 native people, deceased human beings, in the collection of federal agencies and other institutions. While some institutions claim that this was for anthropological study, frankly, there's so much evidence within these institutions that these dead bodies were literally used to try and prove racial inferiority. Plain and simple. In 1987, there was a major looting of a Native American burial mound in Kentucky. Slack Farm is known as a huge archaeological area. It was a, there was a huge village there that existed from 1400 to 1650 Common Era, and this area belonged to the carbon well-born people of the area around the Mississippi River. In 1987, human remains were essentially tossed aside, literally, and tons of cultural items were looted. From November 3rd to November 9th, 1972, there was a takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. While this protest was specifically about the poor treatment by the BIA and, you know, treaties and all that nonsense, it was literally like a hundred years of history into this protest. Protesters did leave with documents and objects that were within the office building. While this isn't specifically related to NAGPRA, the act of taking back some objects I think is still really important to mention. Though, unfortunately, there is some controversy to this protest. A lot of tribal leaders were very critical because there were destruction and theft of treaties that actually supposedly set them back. Um, but there were objects that were taken back. <laughs> I can't talk about NAGPRA without talking about the mother of the, quote, Indian reparation movement, Mariah, Maria Pearson. In the early 1970s, Pearson was really upset that the skeletal remains of Native American people were treated differently from white people. Her husband was an engineer at the Iowa Department of Transportation, and he had told her that both Native American and white remains were uncovered during um, a road con construction located in Glenwood, Iowa. While the remains of 26 white burials were quickly reburied, the remains of the Native American mother and child were sent to a lab for study. Pearson and her husband protested to the then-Governor Robert D. Ray, 
And then they finally got audience with him after literally sitting outside his office in their traditional attire. Her protests and the controversy surrounding what happened to the burials and the bodies led to the eventual passing of Iowa's Burials Protection Act of 1976, which was the first legislative act in the United States that specifically protected Native American remains. This was like ignition to the overall movement, and it eventually led to NAGPRA. So let's look at the sort of laws that are adjacent to NAGPRA. Um and kind of help explain how we got to NAGPRA, as well as how certain things were able to occur, if that makes sense. So Wikipedia, of all places, has a very interesting and clear breakdown of the different sort of laws that have existed for those in power, white people, rich people, etc., that have allowed for the exclusion and further mar marginalization of Native people. These laws being in place allowed for the eventual creation of NAGPRA, of course, but it also allowed for NAGPRA to... But it also allowed for NAGPRA to have had to be such a thing. I'm struggling to like word that. I hope that makes sense. But it's like these things, there were laws in place to protect things, but they didn't necessarily extend to Native people, of course. But also because they were in place, it allowed for the construction of this particular law. I think that makes sense. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's the state statutory law. So basically, states only regulated and protected marked graves. Native American graves were often unmarked, therefore they did not receive the proper protection provided by these statutes. There's common law. The colonizing population formed much of the legal system that we all know and love, and that of course developed over the course of our history here. Um, this law in particular did not often take account the unique practices of Native American people concerning graves, burial, and funer funerary practices. Pract practices. It did not account for government actions against Native American people, including removal, the relationship that Native Americans as different people maintain with their dead, you know, their practices, as well as the sacred ideas and myths related to the possession of graves. There's the equal protection laws. Native American people, as well as others, often found that the remains of their descendants and loved ones were treated differently from the dead of other races. There's the First Amendment. As in most racial and social groups, Native American people had burial practices that related strongly to their religious beliefs and practices. They held that when tribal dead were desecrated, disturbed, and or withheld with, from burial, their religious beliefs and practices were being infringed upon. Religious beliefs and practices are protected by the First Amendment. Sovereignty rights. Native American people hold unique rights as sovereign bodies, leading to their relations to be controlled by their own laws and customs. The relationship between the people and their dead is an eternal relationship, which is to be understood as under the sovereign jurisdiction of the tribe. And then finally, there's treaties. From the beginning of the United States government and tribal relations, the tribes have maintained rights unless specifically divested to the U.S. government in a treaty. The U.S. government does not have the right to disturb Native American graves or their dead because it has not been granted by any treaty. But that, as we know, treaties don't necessarily mean anything to this government. So these laws, both, as you can see by the different 
examples both allowed for further marginalization, allowed for certain things to happen, as well as allowed for the creation of NAGPRA and those protections to have to be in place and allowed for the creation of it because there were certain laws that it were able to support it. And I hope that made sense. I thought this was a really interesting section that I wasn't really expecting while doing my research, um, but I think it does a really good job of explaining the complicatedness. <laughs> NACPRA has been incredibly important despite the fact that getting items back can be very difficult and slow. Frankly, it often comes down to paperwork and going through all of that bureaucracy. Items, of course, have been returned, like I've mentioned in some previous episodes. Again, it's important to mention that in addition to the theft of items, there were the antiquated conservation techniques that have made cultural sacred items incredibly poisonous, which is simply just salt in the wound, whether it was intentional or not. Another difficulty is the fact that, frankly, it's really not easy to get federally recognized if you are a smaller tribe. It can take literal decades to get federally recognized, and if your state does not have a law like NAGPRA, it can be a challenge to get any of your remains or objects returned. There's also the difficulty of the museum and science communities, you know, the different subgroups of that, that want to keep items for preservation and conservation reasons, thinking that a lot of tribes or descendants aren't going to be able to take care of the items properly, as well as the um, ability to continue to study items as well as anthropological studies of bodies. In my personal opinion, I don't see why museums can't simply work on having specific programs that bridge a relationship between descendants and or tribes. Obviously, there is an intense amount of distrust, and I think that it is simply the responsibility of museums and other institutions to work on this. A good thing museums can do is simply have programs specifically for Native people to work on things, like having a conservation program specifically for Native people to work on their own cultural items. This is not something I came up with because it already happens in different institutions. This happens really because, frankly, people belonging to a certain tribe basically have the knowledge and authority to work on certain items. This includes preservation, conservation, restoration, as well as programming and curating, and simply knowing the history. I feel like a lot of issues with museums and their collections could be worked on by literally working on their relationship with communities. But by now, I think we all know that museums can be incredibly difficult and stubborn. Hopefully more institutions catch on because it's important to show everyone's history in a respectful, truthful, and meaningful way. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you maybe learned something. I did put effort into making this episode, both in trying to speak better when I recorded, as well as the research itself. It's just a little bit exhausting for me right now this year has been exhausting for me and for everybody else. So I think anybody listening understands that I'm going through things. So I hope that even though these two different topics don't really work together, in a way they work together, but you know what I mean. I hope that you still enjoyed something and got something out of it. Um, I'm going to be working really hard on the rest of the episodes for this year, trying to do really good research, present really good, interesting topics, and hopefully nothing else happens in my life, please knock on wood, do a spell, say a prayer that nothing else happens in my life because I'm, I'm done with this. So I decided that because of the gap in time from the presidential portraits episode and everything that's happened in between that, I'm going to put a little bit of pause on the listener questions that I present each week. And I'm really sorry about that. It's just a little bit 
much right now and it, it kind of hurts my head to try and figure out what exactly to do. I know that doesn't necessarily sound too complicated to you, the listener, but just right now it's something that I don't really want to deal, <laughs> deal with and I feel like it's a little bit too awkward. So I'm going to return to this hopefully in the new year. I'm going to try and work something out and maybe try some new things. So we'll just have to see how things go. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you're okay and doing all right. I know that the holiday time is really difficult for some people and then you have this year and everything that's going on. So wear a mask, stay safe, don't go to parties, um, don't let your family and friends guilt trip you into going to a party. And I hope that you eat a sweet treat and get a sweet gift like some comfy socks. Um, Even though I'm saying this as if Christmas is happening next week. It's not, (laughs) but still, I hope good things happen. I hope good things happen for you, regardless of whatever time it is. I don't have a concept of time. And hopefully you get to hear from me next week with hopefully a... (sighs) I just can't catch a break. Hello, this is Rhea. Hello. Y'all interrupted my podcast for this. Hopefully you get to hear from me next week with hopefully a holiday themed episode. We need to bring a little bit of holiday into this podcast. So that's it. (laughs) I need to end this. Bye.